And here we go with the Jack Riccardi Show. Hey, good afternoon. Same to you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I carpooled with John Morant today, so it was kind of exciting. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so the Durham report has uh, just come out. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think the first reaction I had was it was kind of like when you um, hear the death notice of a celebrity that you actually thought had already died. <laughs> I <laughs> Right, right. I thought to myself, Durham, Durham, where have I heard that name? Yeah. Oh, yes. You know what's compelling is one of the stories I just read. This is just popping like in the last just, 20, yeah, 30 minutes. Yeah. And when AP... Associated Press is even acknowledging that the results were, quote, underwhelming. Eh, it tells you something. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that and uh, many other things uh, this afternoon. Christian, thank you. Welcome to our dreadful little show. You can join the show right now at 210-599-5555. So it was four years ago, almost to this day, that John Durham was uh, given the job by Bill Barr, the then Attorney General under President Trump, to look into why and how the FBI uh, investigated the 2016 Trump campaign and Russian collusion therein. This report is 300-something pages. I Obviously, I haven't read it, um, but th- there are pieces uh, being excerpted and quoted uh, all over the place, and the one that everybody is running is the one that says, The facts show that the FBI's handling of important aspects of the Crossfire Hurricane matter were seriously deficient. Based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane and related intelligence activities, we conclude that the Justice Department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in this report. Durham finds in his report that the FBI should never have opened the investigation and that once opening them should not have turned them over to politically motivated people like former FBI agent Peter Strzok. And what's interesting about this, obviously people will break out the parts of it that they find interesting or that support their thesis. Um, we, we have to remember the part that the Trump... Russia collusion, I don't know what you want to call it, belief system or weather system. you got to remember the part that that played in the last four or five years of our history. Media organizations won awards. Political uh, you know, careers were made and broken. Elections were affected and perhaps changed. And on a personal basis, how many people couldn't have Thanksgiving dinner with their relatives or lost friendships? Because this was not only controversial, it was incredibly divisive. And I think you can say that the the ways in which people divided over whether Trump was a, was a traitor, whether Trump had uh, made some sort of deal... Or whether instead the traitors were his critics, the people that tried to stop him, the people that purchased and used fake information like the Steele dossier to get warrants from the FISA court. Are they the traitors? But in in any event, whichever side of that you were on, 
It divided us. And I found myself thinking this afternoon as this news was breaking, will the media organizations give back the awards? Will they cover the Durham report with the same assiduous detail that they covered the allegations against Trump and Russia in the first place? In other words, it would seem to me that if that was important to report in 2017 and 2018 and 2019, then certainly what this exhaustive report is saying would also merit that kind of coverage. I'm not holding my breath, but it it would seem to, right? And will people that aren't talking to one another talk to one another? Maybe it's too much to ask, right? So we're going to talk about that. I want to get your thoughts on it, 210-599-5555. When the Durham report or when the Durham investigation was launched, I think a lot of people thought, well, this is where we're going to get this thing set up and get straight on this. But, of course, as predicted by many, it has come really too late to have any kind of impact on the events that it affected. So now the question is, will it even matter to people? Or has so much time gone by that you and everyone you know has already made up their mind and isn't isn't going to revisit what they think or how they feel about this because it's it's baked in. 210-599-5555. We will bring our constitutional law expert, Bill Pyatt, in on this uh, later on in the show, but you can join the show and talk about it right now. It turns out that um, downtown doesn't mean what it used to mean. Like when I was a kid, if your parents were going in town or you had a field trip in town or your birthday present came from a store downtown, that was a superlative. Those were those were exciting words. Downtown was cool. Downtown was a treat. After the pandemic, and remember during the pandemic, downtowns were ghost towns. After the pandemic, the University of Toronto used mobile device activity because that's a very reliable way of tracking large quantities of people and their movements and where they go and how long they stay. They used mobile device activity to figure out if downtowns were coming back, and the answer is they're not. In fact, San Antonio is the the best city in Texas for returning to its pre-pandemic activity level. We're at 63% of our pre-pandemic activity level downtown, according to the university. Austin is only at 53%. Cities like San Francisco and Portland and Minneapolis are in the 30s and 40s, the best cities in the country. There were a handful of cities that are actually more active downtown now than they were before the pandemic. They include Salt Lake, Fresno, and Columbus, among others. So the the pandemic hurt downtown. Then you have crime or the perception of it. You look at the Daniel Penny story, and you see that defense of oneself, defense of others, is prosecuted by the same officials that are not prosecuting crime and predation and demoralizing and defunding police. They're going after Daniel Penny with the kind of enthusiasm you would like to see them go after the criminals with. And so you start to ask yourself, do we even want downtown like we used to? Like, 
when I was a kid, the best stores were downtown. The best restaurants were downtown. Not that I was going to them, but I knew that. Uh, the coolest attractions were downtown, and in some cases they still are. But a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you used to have to go downtown for has been replicated or moved to outlying parts of, of American cities, including San Antonio. For example, today, if you needed to buy a really nice gift for somebody or you wanted to go out for a really nice meal, you'd probably be going outbound on I-10, not inbound. And it raises the question, if downtowns are going to continue to elect and re-elect politicians and prosecutors that are wrecking them, that are destroying them, should we care? If the people who live downtown and vote this way don't care, if, they don't, if they're not learning, if they're going from the frying pan to the fire like Chicago... If they're electing these Soros DAs like we have here, what do we care? And maybe it's time to stop worrying about what the blue downtowns of our country are doing. Let them live with it. Maybe we should avoid it. I mean, we can now. Downtown is an essential in the way that it was in American life, say, 40 or 50 years ago. And if they don't want to help themselves, what are we worrying about? I mean, maybe you remember taking vacations in New York City or San Francisco. And you knew it would be different, and you knew you had to act and prepare differently, but would you do that now? Are those places you want to go now? And if we can't fix them, then maybe we contain them. And maybe we stop collectively funding and enabling what they're doing. And maybe we also point to them as examples of how the whole country is going to look if the politicians and the ideologies of the downtowns spread. I mean, it's different in some cities, it's, it's worse in some places than others, but even in a city like San Antonio, which is a city to which people flee and try to escape these pathologies, we're starting to see them. And there may come a point, we're not there yet, but there may come a point where we have to look at our own downtown the way people are looking at the downtowns in San Francisco, Minneapolis, Chicago, New York. What do you think about that? Do you go downtown as much as you did four years ago? Let's let's say four years pre-pandemic, so 2019. Do you find yourself going downtown more or less than you did four years ago? And we're going to talk about that, and that's our question on the JR poll today, powered by River City Oral Surgery. Do you go downtown more or less than you did four years ago? And what goes into that decision? 210 599 We're going to talk about the prosecution of Daniel Penny, by the way, and what it will mean for the uh, state to make its case and what the eyewitnesses and their accounts uh, are going to mean. There's a guy who says Daniel Penny is like the passengers on United Flight 93. 
I'll run that by you, see what you think about that. We'll get your votes in on the JR poll. We've got our first look at KTSA Time Saver Traffic coming up next. Hey, it's Trey Ware. I'll have the latest news, traffic, and weather first thing tomorrow morning starting at 5 o'clock on News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. I hope you had a good weekend and uh, ready for a good week. You can join the show at 210-599-5555. Do you go downtown in San Antonio more or less than you did four years ago? And it's pretty clear that most cities have not come back from their pre-pandemic or come back to their pre-pandemic level of activity, according to this really interesting study from the University of Toronto. They looked at uh, cell phone and mobile device movement so they could sort of cloud track people. And it was pretty clear that in some cities, in a handful of cities, their downtowns are as busy as they ever were and more so. But in most major American cities, including San Antonio, it's much less than it was four years ago. And we are actually doing better than any other major Texas city, except El Paso. And I was thinking about El Paso. El Paso is probably one you'd have to throw out at the moment, because I would think a lot of the downtown activity in El Paso is not, well, it's not the the normal downtown activity at the moment. I mean, we know what's, what's going on down there at the moment. Um, so I would say for me, um, when I think about downtown, when I was a kid, all the cool things were downtown. It felt like a treat to go downtown. Even when I was a young man, um, you know, if you went on a special date or you celebrated a special occasion or you just wanted to kind of put on the Ritz, you went downtown. And that was true in other cities that I lived in. And now I think about it and I think, you know, you really don't have to go downtown for that stuff. The nicest places and things in any American city can be found in in outlying areas just as likely as they can be found downtown. I'm not running it down. I'm just saying it's not as necessary and as desirable uh, as it used to be. And the other thing that's different is you had to have a certain mindset when you went downtown. You had to kind of think about where you were and what was going on around you. That was always true. That was always true. These places were not, you know, theme parks. But you look at what's happening now, and it just doesn't look like a level playing field. It looks like even if you've got your head in a swivel, and even if you're minding your own business, and even if you're up to, you know, you're just, you know, do, doing legitimate stuff, there's there's a level of unpredictability that you've got to price into your decision, and it, it probably isn't worth it. And so... I think that's what these numbers reflect. Obviously, the pandemic is over. If it was just the pandemic, these these places would all be back. 210-599-5555. The passengers on Flight 93 on September 11th, 2001, heard about the other hijacked planes. They knew that Theirs was not the only plane to be hijacked, and they knew what had happened to at least two of the others. So they knew they were not in a typical hijacking, which in the old days used to mean you would just land somewhere other than your scheduled destination, and eventually you'd get off and you'd have a story to tell. They acted and fought their 
hijackers because it was the only thing to do. If they stayed in their seats, they were dead. If they fought back, maybe they weren't. Michael Benjamin, writing in the New York Post, says he thinks Daniel Penny was kind of like the heroes of Flight 93, the guy in the subway with the other uh, F-train riders, knew what was happening on subway platforms and stations and cars. They knew that people were being pushed to their death by crazed homelessness, uh, homeless people. They knew that there were slashings and stabbings. A guy in San Francisco had his hand cut off with a sword over the weekend. Uh, three people in the subways of New York City were uh, slashed yesterday alone. So just as the Flight 93 passengers said, well, what have we got to lose? Michael Benjamin says, I think Daniel Penny figured, what have I got to lose? I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to wait and see what this guy's going to do. He's threatened people. He's yelling things like, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to go to jail. Is that comparable? And if he's a vigilante, if he took matters into his own hands, would you say that about the Flight 93 passengers as well? And see, the key thing is, in both cases, you know no one else is going to come to your rescue. And in both cases, you are aware of what has happened in similar situations to the one you now find yourself in. It's very easy to sit back in the comfort of our offices and our homes and judge this situation. But I think it's a good idea. I think we've all thought, what would I do? What would I have done if I had been on Flight 93? I don't know a single person that hasn't thought about that. What would I have done? Would I have joined that group that plotted and attacked Would I have stayed in my seat? And again, they knew what was happening. They knew the context of the situation they were in. They knew they weren't the only ones. Maybe it would have been different if they didn't know that. But they knew, if you will, that a new era had started that morning. I mean, they were the first to realize that things weren't like they had been on September 10th. When you look at downtown New York City or San Antonio, this is not the downtown of four years ago or 14 years ago or 40 years ago. What do you think? 210-599-5555. Coming up, there's another beer commercial you've got to hear. I I think it's real. I'm so blown away by this. I I literally, I want to think it's a fake hoax commercial, but it appears to be an actual beer commercial uh, that is just unbelievable. You're going to hear that. The Durham report is out. We're going to talk about that. Uh, And uh, Todd Benzman from Center for Immigration Studies, uh, we're going to talk about what's going on after the lifting of Title 42. The president over the weekend uh, kind of boasted that the border is in better shape than you people thought it would be in. He was talking to the reporters Uh, So we're going to talk to Todd Benzman about whether the Biden administration is right to take a victory lap after Title 42 and your calls 
as we continue today's Jack Riccardi show on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. If you kept your employees or even one employee through the pandemic and you kept your business open through the pandemic, you've got a story to tell. I mean, you clearly did something right. And there is something out there called the employee, the employee, um, Sorry, just blanked out on it for a minute. It's called the Employee Retention Tax Credit, the ERTC. I couldn't remember the R. And what they've done is they've made this money available for businesses that qualify for it. You have to have a W-2 employee. You have to have stayed open through the pandemic. And there's a couple of other things. And over at Bottom Line Bookkeeping, Carla Flesh can walk you through what those are. She has it all boiled down to a simple questionnaire. You answer a few questions. It costs you nothing to do this. And she can let you know if your business, if your company would qualify for the money. Now, if not, fine. But if so, then you can go forward with her and get what you have coming. Her clients are averaging over $100,000 in ERTC credits. So for no money down in a few minutes of your time, shouldn't you find out if your business, your company, your franchise qualifies for the employee retention tax credit? By the way, you have to have just one minimum of one W-2 employee. It does not matter if you took PPP money. And Carla will walk you through all that when you call her at 210-313-3249. 210-313-3249. Talk to Carla or go to bottomlinebks.com. At home, anywhere, in the car, anytime, anytime, everywhere. Get the Jack Riccardi Show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, so just about the time that people were moving on from the Bud Light outrage. Miller Lite has a commercial. This is an online commercial. It's not a, a commercial that will run on television unless they cut it down to a, lo- a shorter version. And, uh, well, you'll, you'll hear about some other changes they'll probably have to make. But this is, this is um, I guess, Miller Lite saying to Bud Light, hold my beer. Take a listen to this. Here's a little known fact. Women were among the very first to brew beer ever. From Mesopotamia to the Middle Ages to colonial America, women were the ones doing the brewing. Centuries later, how did the industry pay homage to the founding mothers of beer? They put us in bikinis. Wow. Look at this Wild. It's time beer made it up to women. So today, Miller Lite is on a mission to clean up not just their but the whole beer industry's Miller Lite has been scouring the internet for all this and buying it back so that they can turn it into good for women brewers. Literally, good How, you ask? Ladies, take it away. First, we turn the bad into compost. Then we feed compost to wharves. Push out beautiful fertilizer. That good helps farmers grow quality hops. Which is then donated to women brewers to make their own really good But there's definitely more out there your attic, in the garage, in your parents' basement. Send any shit you got into Miller Lite, and they'll turn that into good shit, too. Oh. So here's to women, because without us, there would be no beer. Mm. 
Um, I don't know. I, I can't dispute the part about women probably were, were brewing beer. I mean, that that's probably true. Um, in what in what universe does this seem like a good idea? Uh, unless unless this is some like next level uh, irony, you know? Because when I first saw this, I really thought this is like this is Babylon B or The Onion. I mean, it's it has that vibe of it's so over the top, the the use of the ish word and everything. It just I thought it's okay. This is a this is a satire. This is parody. And then everything I've been able to determine um, says no. This is this is from Miller Lite. So it's not a parody of the Bud Light situation using Miller Lite. This is Miller Lite messaging. I, I guess where where I look at this is if you. If you thought the message of the Bud Light ad, or Bud Light, not ad, but the the influencer campaign with Dylan Mulvaney, if you thought the message was beer is not just for straight guys, I don't think you, you got it. We didn't need to be told that anyone can drink beer or that anyone does drink beer. We didn't need to know that. What we saw was a brand that forgot who's drinking it in a futile reach for some people who weren't, and very few of them. And now I guess the message is, well, you you men sexualized women to sell beer. I'm sorry, were the were the women in the beer ads of the 80s and 90s were they were they being held prisoner? Were they um were they slaves? Were that were they held at gunpoint and made to do these were these not models and actresses? And if a woman chooses to pose in a bikini, isn't that just as empowering and and feisty and independent as any other choice she could make? Is it only a good choice when a woman block walks for Beto? But if she chooses to be a swimsuit model for a beer company, that's, what is that? Uh, is that like uh, indentured servitude? I mean, it's so ridiculous. And the, the fact is, whether you look at beer, whether you look at uh, razor blades and shaving cream, every one of these male-oriented businesses that tries to deny that it is a male-oriented business always winds up basically stepping on itself and, and you know, fouling itself, and then eventually having to come back to some form of the marketing that they did before. I'm thinking, like, remember years ago when Gillette tried this? And, I mean, it's just not a thing. And now when you look at their advertising, they've kind of sort of gotten back. It's sort of a softened, you know, Gen Z version of the old Gillette guy. It's not as strong a jawline, but it's the same basic message, right? Here are some good-looking guys shaving, and here are women appreciating their freshly shaven faces, which is the same message it was in the 1980s, in the 1970s. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? I mean, there's probably nothing you can really say about Miller Lite or Bud Light. It's not very tasty. It's not very satisfying. You can't really talk about it like it's it's a treat. 
So you're basically reduced to just like vague imagery and you're trying to keep it in people's minds. When a, when a person walks into a restaurant or a bar and they don't know which beer they want, you're hoping that they'll blurt out the name of yours first. That's basically what it is, right? I mean, if you're going out for a beer, you're going out for a beer. You're not going out for beer because, because you've heard ads for beer. <laughs> oh, I never thought. Go out for a beer? I never thought of that. No. So at this level of marketing, when you're at the level of the Bud Lights and the Miller Lights, or back in the day, even like cigarette brands, they weren't making you smoke. They were just hoping you would remember their name when you went up to the counter. And, and I mean, it, it's that's about all. That's about all it is. So if it's good-looking people or catchy jingles or funny frogs or celebrities, that's that's how you keep it in the top of people's minds it's not a value statement it's not complicated it's not political this is an example of people who don't know where to draw the boundaries of politics you know if you're a religious zealot okay if you're a religious fanatic you talk about religion in all kinds of places that it's inappropriate and unwelcome and makes people uncomfortable. And you don't really spread your religion that way because you're, you're, you're in the wrong place with the wrong people. It's the same thing with political zealots, political, um, you know, fanatics. They're not content to have a debate or, or, or discuss an issue in the venues where those things are actually being decided they bring it everywhere. So they're the people that, that can't help themselves at the Thanksgiving table. They're the people that can't help themselves when you're just having a, a friendly chat among neighbors or, or what have you. And, and, and so now they think that every moment of broadcast time and screen time is a moment to posture and gesticulate about gender. And that's not, it's just beer. Tell me what you think, 210-599-5555. Was Daniel Penny, the Marine, on the F train like the United Flight 93 passengers? Somebody that felt, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Do you agree with that comparison that Michael Benjamin made in the New York Post? And we're just getting uh, first word about the John Durham report. John Durham, the special counsel, says that the DOJ and FBI did not uphold their mission of strict fidelity to the law in going into the Trump-Russia investigation. By the way, if this report, as it appears, I haven't read it yet, but if this report says that essentially malpractice occurred, where does one go to get compensation? I mean, I'm not saying that I expect people in the media or in politics to fall on their swords and apologize. I don't think they will. But but even if they did, even if the news organization said, wow, we really got that wrong. So what? You changed American history. You changed Potentially, the outcome of the 2020 election. How many people, I mean, I'm asking rhetorically, 
How many people's opinion of the Donald Trump presidency was formed by their belief, which was in turn formed by repetition, that he colluded with Russia? In other words, how many people didn't judge his presidency based on how they did economically or how they think the country was doing or to what extent he was keeping his campaign promises from 2016? The, 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 the normal things that we would judge a president on and say, well, should we reelect this guy or throw this guy out? How many people were unable to do that or unwilling to do that because they had heard from every source they had ever trusted on anything from the most prestigious law enforcement organization in the world, that this was somebody who had colluded with Putin's Russia. How do you fix that when it is in the history books? The game was played. You know, you you can't, I, I, somebody will say it, but you can't restage the 2020 election. You just can't. 210-599-5555, even though it does look like we're going to have a rematch of the people in it. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to get your thoughts and your votes in the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, and another look at KTSA Time Saver Traffic coming up on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Every remodeler has to depend on other companies to supply the materials and the components that go into remodeling a kitchen or bathroom. So when a remodeler gives you his word about remodeling your bathroom, he's also taking the word of other people. And the problem with that is if those other people don't keep their word. So over at Kitchen Design by Giovanni, they found that one of the big, I guess you'd say bottlenecks, was the supply chain for cabinetry. They were ordering cabinets from the best cabinet makers in the country, but those weren't coming in on time or completely. And that was affecting the jobs they were doing here in San Antonio. So they now build all solid wood custom cabinetry for their remodel projects right here in San Antonio. Kitchen Design by Giovanni eliminated the middleman, builds the cabinets. Those cabinets are then ready when your project, your kitchen, your bathroom is ready for them. When you call 210-460-0113 and set up your time to visit with Giovanni and go to the showroom and and meet with the designers and pick all your materials. They'll explain more about that, but it's it's part of how they keep their word, they keep their projects on time and on budget. 210-460-0113 for Kitchen Designs by Giovanni. 210-460-0113. Today's JR poll at KTSA.com is powered by River City Oral Surgery. News that moves you. On my way to work. They're great reporting. They have interesting stories. Just the personalities. Catch Ware and Rima weekdays starting at 7 a.m. Well, they cover everything in depth. Nationally, internationally. And stay connected with News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. 453 on KTSA, Jack Riccardi. So we've got the Durham report finally released. And... If it has in it what we think it does, what do you do about that? What do you do about the fact that the people he's calling out, the Department of Justice, the FBI, career prosecutors, career law enforcement, Jim Comey, didn't just misbehave or fall short. This isn't like a, 
This isn't like a, a performance review at work. Yeah, there's some stuff you need to work on. You know, we're, not, we're not completely satisfied with your job performance. This was history-making, history-changing. And um, obviously, we've never seen this in our country before. And by that I mean we've, we've probably had people in the highest levels of power do things that would curl your hair and we didn't know it. There are some episodes we have suspicions about, right, like the CIA and JFK, but we don't know. But if this turns out to be a report, and again, I haven't read the 360 pages of it, but if this turns out to be a report that lays out intentional misconduct, people like Comey and people in the intelligence community, knowing they're lying, knowing they're dealing in uh, fantasies and falsehood, putting things out that change, changed our history and changed our politics. What do you do about that? Because I, I jokingly said, would would the news organizations give back their Pulitzers and their their awards? I don't think they will, but even if they did, so what? And Jim Comey's no longer at the FBI, and Peter Strzok is no longer at the FBI, so it's not like you'd say, well, we're going to fire their asses. We That's already been done. Where do you go to correct a distorted, hoaxed election? And if you say, and a lot of people I'm sure will, well, Jack, you know, these things happen, and uh, it's going to have to be careful from here on out. Don't you wonder about here on out? I mean, the alternative, I guess, would be that you, you say, well, it's water under the bridge, and we'll go forward now, we know better, and people will be more... Um, skeptical or cynical about the investigation of presidential candidates. But in fact, if you think about it, and and if you're a Trump supporter, this may be a way you've never thought about it before. But as much as you want to defend your guy, what if there was a presidential candidate from one of the major parties, somebody who could become president? who was making a deal. Because there actually was. This happened 40 years ago. Ted Kennedy, when he was making what would be his last attempt to run for president, in the lead-up to the 1984 campaign, there was it was an open Democratic field to face President Reagan. Ted Kennedy talked with and made very, very grisly and um, treacherous overtures to the Soviet Union in a quid pro quo to sort of destabilize Reagan as a Cold War president, as somebody that could be trusted. 
And it's pretty clear that Ted Kennedy's intentions were, hey, if you guys help me and look, make me look favorable and statesmanlike, and I get in, I will be a more cooperative and um, reasonable American president across the table from what you have now. We need the FBI. We need the Department of Justice. We need people like Comey to do their job in situations like this. We, we can't sit here and go, well, we'll just never believe it again. If we ever hear anything like this again, we just won't believe it because that's not good enough. We're going to talk about this after the news. Many other things on 550 and 1071 KTSA. And right back you go for more of the Jack Riccardi Show. So let's try a sports analogy here for the Durham report, okay? Mm-hmm. I looked it up. The 2019, because I couldn't remember, the 2019 World Series was Washington and Houston. Okay, yeah. Let's say that four years later, we had a report that said uh, the umpires missed some calls, strike zone was wrong, stuff like that. What do you do with that? Was this the World Series when uh, Altuve had the the jersey I, deal? I <laughs> Am I muddy that. in the water? <laughs> I'm just picking a I'm just picking an example from four years ago, and I'm saying you can you can elucidate the errors, but you're not going to replay the games. That's right. You're not going to take the Nationals who won that series. Uh, I think it was four to three out of the record book and say, well, they're not the champions that year, right? You're not going to. You're not going to do it. So people want satisfaction. If if you tell them, hey, this wasn't done the way it should have been, they want to know, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, let me complicate this just a tad. The NCAA will take a Heisman Trophy away from a guy like Reggie mm. Bush. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard of I mean, the, the Carter Cowboys of 1988 in Dallas, state football champs, incredible mm-hmm. football team. Years after the fact, UIL took the state championship. Well, you can't go back and replay it. I mean, what's the team that gets the, the trophy that got stomped in the championship? I don't know the answer to that, but yeah. Yeah. it's it's a conundrum for sure. I mean, I think you can take a name off of an award mm-hmm. fairly easily. It's rare. But you can't undo the political events that may have been affected by mm-hmm. the thing that you're now reporting on. And that's why the analogy only goes so far, because in right. sports you can right. do that kind of thing. This is way bigger than that. Way bigger than that, yeah. absolutely. Uh, we're going to mix a little sports and a little politics with our next guest. We always love having him. He's uh, Metro columnist for the San Antonio Express News, Gilbert Garcia, joining the show. Gilbert, good afternoon. Welcome back. Thank you, Jack. Um, I want to do a little playoff and a little runoff talk mm-hmm. with you, if we if we can uh, if we can do that. Sure. Um, pretty interesting. I think this is the first time. I think I heard this morning that this is the first time in NBA history that you've got uh, play-in teams in both conference finals. You've got the Lakers in the West yeah. and the Heat. Uh, in the East. Is that a vindication of the play-in system, or is that sort of horrifying to you that these teams that were really hovering around 500 and looked like they were left for dead are now going to be in the finals? Well, the thing that really comes to mind for me is that I think in recent years, um, we've seen teams 
putting less emphasis on excelling during the regular season. Um, and this was something, I mean, the Spurs kind of started the sort of, uh, you know, load management type of thing with Tim Duncan and sitting players out. Um, but they still managed to win a lot of games during that period. And I think now teams are, are have this mindset that it's not that important uh, or as important as we used to think it was to get a high seed. And I think when you see, you know, the Lakers, you know, what, I think they were seventh seed or, you know, and Miami is similar type of situation. I think, it, I think going forward, the lesson teams will take from that is, you know, if you keep your players rested and yeah. just try to yeah. peak at the right time, you know, just stay in the hunt. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, obviously I'm a Celtics fan, so I'm not going to be unhappy about what happened yesterday. But if you're an NBA fan, that was a horror show. I mean, that was a stomping uh, by the Celtics. And that was a complete... Uh, the, the Sixers just disappeared in the second half. James Harden had zero points in the fourth quarter of games five, six, and seven. Joel Embiid, the MVP, nowhere to be found. It wasn't that these guys weren't making their shots. They weren't even taking them, Gilbert. I mean, Joel Embiid was walking down the court like he was out for a stroll. Yeah, and with with Embiid, I'm willing to at least consider the possibility that, you know, he's had problem with his knee. There are some people saying he might have tweaked it during the game. Um, there may be some excuse there, but Harden has a pretty long history of uh, of underperforming in these these critical playoff games. He had a great one. He had an amazing game one in the series that and, and saved them when Embiid wasn't playing. But yeah, he he disappeared as he often has. And one of the things that kind of drives me crazy about the the present day NBA is just you see. I mean, the, I think the the Sixers were eight for thirty seven from the three point line, and it was just. So it was such an ugly third quarter. And um, like many teams, they just will insist on just kind of firing up one three-pointer after another, regardless of how poorly they're doing. I mean, and I just, I just think the emphasis on the three-pointer can, can get a little absurd at times. The other thing that I uh, really made me nervous about this series between Philly and, and Boston was that I, I think the, the, the Achilles heel of the Celtics is the rookie coach, and Mm -hmm. in the playoffs, you need to be experienced, you need to be really savvy, you need to be able to make in-game adjustments. Joe Mazzulla has no track record of being able to do that. But what was shocking to me was how bad Doc Rivers was. I mean, he was so bad that I think they have to look at moving on from him. Yeah, I I think this this might have been his last game with with the Sixers. And, you know, I think he's so many people around basketball – really like him a lot and had he's had some success but he also has a really bad record in game sevens i i i i think that if i'm correct on this there are now seven instances in which he had teams ahead three to two in the playoffs and lost the series yeah, and, uh, i looked it up because this is incredible good. in the whole history of the nba there have been 13 blown 3-1 series leads and he blew three of them He's six yeah. and ten in game sevens, which is by far the most losses for any coach in history. He's seventeen and thirty-three in games where his team can clinch a series. That's a thirty-four percent win rate. Most losses again for a coach in that scenario. I mean, by all these metrics, he he is literally the last guy you want coaching. 
Yeah, and, and I love is, Doc you know, Rivers. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. He's a great guy. He was a great player. But I, this is just not for him. When you get late into a series, I mean, the teams are so familiar with each other, and they're constantly having to make adjustments. And I think that when you get to the, you know, a game six or a game seven, and you're not making adjustments, and certainly yesterday, I mean, they had no answer for Jason Tatum at all. Um, uh, you just, you, and he's there's just a, a bad track record there for Doc Rivers. Um, let's talk about the the conference finals real quick. It's going to be the uh, Nuggets and the Lakers tomorrow night, Game One. Who do you like in that series? How do you see that series going? I've been really impressed with the Lakers. I, you know, they look like a mess four months ago. They made some good moves, yeah. um, and um, I think they've got you know it seems like they've got some really good su- supporting players. And they, if, if uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron James can stay healthy, I think it's going to be a tough series. I just think that Denver is probably a little better. And Jokic is doing some things that, you know, we, mm-hmm. we really haven't seen anything like this on the offensive end from somebody who's just a seven-footer who can shoot the way he does and pass the way he does and just dominate the game. You know, my theory about Jokic is we, we'd be talking about him more, but the, the Western Conference was like a soap opera. I mean, think about it. You had the whole thing with KD going to Phoenix. You had who will play for the Lakers alongside LeBron. You had the potential and then realized collapse of the of the Warriors dynasty. I mean it's it's one thing after another and and Denver is just this very quiet, high achieving, consistent. They were up there all year uh and and I I just think we don't appreciate how great he is because there's always a bigger storyline in the West. And I haven't even mentioned all of them. Yeah, and and I don't think he it's in his nature to call attention to himself. I think with, when all the MVP talk was flaring up, you know, I think he he's he said he didn't care. Embarrassed by it. Yeah. Yeah, he did. yeah, but uh, I mean, it's almost as if Larry Bird were seventh footers. I mean, just in terms of just all the things he can do offensively and make his his teammates better. So you're picking the Nuggets in the West. Uh, Celtics and Heat will get underway on Wednesday. This is a rematch of last year's uh, conference final in the East. And I, to me, the Celtics would be an obvious pick, but. I, if Butler plays in this series at any time, the way he played in the Milwaukee series, I, you just never know. Yeah, he's he's an amazing force in the playoffs. Uh, there, I mean, Miami's a great story. They're an overachiever uh, and uh, really well coached team, mentally tough. I do think the Sixers, I mean, the, the Celtics are more talented, and I think ultimately they'll win it. But um, yeah. but the Heat are tough. What do you do with John Morant? Oh, that's it's a it's a really sad case. He's a ta- such a talented player, and uh, I, I I don't know. For folks you know, that thing, don't know, thing... for folks that don't know, a video came out over the weekend. It was posted to Instagram by a friend of his. Apparently, we don't know where this happened. I don't think, but he's riding around in a car brandishing a gun, <clears throat> and this is a guy who already went through a suspension and some sort of intervention, right, Gilbert? And right. you know, sort of said, I, "I've seen the light, and I'm okay now." And they've suspended him. It's the off season, but they've suspended him uh, for some period of time from basketball operations. And the rumor is that the NBA, the league, is going to suspend him for some part of of next season. Yeah, and if this this was it, taken in isolation, I mean, there there's no there's. I mean, I don't think he was violating any laws by by ha- having a gun with him. But it it because there has been this history, recent history of him and uh you know some some similar incidents i think that uh you know there's kind of a a 
zero tolerance sort of attitude now with him uh, in the yeah. NBA. I mean, you've I got mean, like just... you've got like state laws about guns, but then you have like the NBA, if you will, laws, and and those are the okay. ones he has to. Those are the ones he has to abide by, right? And the thing that's frustrating, he knew that. That's the thing. It's yeah. You know, he he had to be aware of it, and it's 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 really can't help but make you think that he just might be, you know, the type of player who just doesn't learn his lesson. And because up to this point, I've been willing to, to think he's a young guy. He's got a lot of pressure on him and a lot of scrutiny and uh, he'll figure things out. And uh, that might not be the case. Um, but, it, but if you get rid of him, I think that, you know, he's they've built that team around him. And I think that that would be yeah. really hard for the Grizzlies to yeah. part with him. Yeah. I mean, he's a, according to Draymond Green on his podcast, he's a really smart guy. Yeah. So the 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 question is, he's smart about basketball, but why is he being dumb about his career? Because the NBA doesn't need him, but they sure did want him. I think it, at a certain point this season, it looked like he might be the next, you know, the next face of the league. Right now, I don't think right. that's going to be the case at all. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, speaking of. Uh, Faces and new faces. Rick Perry said over the weekend that he's looking at running next year. What What is your first reaction to that? I can't believe he's, he's actually going to do it. Um, um, I just can't imagine it. Look, I, this is the this is the way I saw it. I think 2012. We all know he had there was there was a window there for him. He actually was mm-hmm. the front runner for a, for a, for a little bit, and it didn't go well. I always believed in 2016 that he ran in some way to redeem himself. I think he felt yeah. unhappy with, with the, his performance and he wanted to go and, and give it a better, you know, effort. Um, I think that's what that was about. I don't think he thought in 2016, I've got a good chance of winning, yeah. but I, I want to just put, do right now. I just, I, I don't I don't see what the, uh, the rationale would be other than just boredom or something, you know? Yeah. We've got uh, two city council runoff uh, elections uh, coming up June 10th, district one, and District 7. Walk us through those real quick, how you see those shaping up right now. Well, in District 1, you've got uh, Mario Bravo, an incumbent, uh, who as uh, I think he's, you know, he, he had a controversy last September, uh, which he uh, publicly berated his former romantic partner, Ana Sandoval, a fellow council member. Uh, he had, they had, a, he was unhappy about a vote that she was going to take. Um, and the, his behavior uh, prompted the council to censure him. Uh, he also got he's also gotten some criticism from people in the businesses in the North St. Mary's community about how slow the the work the construction work has been there. Though I, I don't I think that project began before he joined the council, and I think he's tried to to get things uh, improved there. But um, he uh, finished second in the the first round uh, of voting to Sukkor, who's an education consultant, and. Uh, She's particularly now starting to really get some strong business mm. community support or some fundraisers for her. Um, but, you know, he's uh, he one thing about Mario Bravo is that he has the, the supporters he has are, are extremely loyal and he cultivated some pretty strong support among uh, neighborhood associations. Um, right now, I mean, people are looking at you know the fact that he only got 26 percent and thinking that's a, a troubling sign for an incumbent. But I think it's going to be a pretty. T- uh, mm. It's going to be a very competitive race, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, District seven is different. That was just an open seat with a lot of candidates. That's right. And the final two are uh, Marina Alderete uh, Gavito. Uh, she's the daughter of Joe Alderete, who who held that seat many years ago. 
um, and she's the former executive director of SH Connects. Her opponent, Dan Rossiter, is uh, he's a former program manager at Southwest Research Institute. She she got about 42% of the vote. I think he was around 22%. I think most people have looked at her throughout this race as the um, you know, the the front runner. She she has high profile supporters, Nelson Wool, Justin Rodriguez, people like that. Um, but I I think many people who you know, met Dan Rossiter, have talked about being really impressed with him. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, I, that's not, I, again, I, I think she's probably in pretty good position there, but that's, uh, that could be pretty competitive too. All right, playoffs and runoffs. We know we can count on this guy for that. Gilbert Garcia, who also <laughs> hosts the Puro, Politic, uh, Puro Politics uh, podcast and the KLRN TV show Texas Talk and talks to us from time to time. And Gilbert, good to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. We'll talk to you soon. We're going to update KTSA Time Saver Traffic here next. Hey, Stray Ware, I've got the latest on what you need to know tomorrow morning starting at 5 on News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Jack Riccardi on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Hey, we have a new feature on the show called the Jack Chat Line. You can uh, basically leave a comment, have a comment, on anything we've talked about any time, even if you're listening to the podcast uh, and not live to the show, it's 210-599-5550. You leave your first name, your city or town, and your comment. We play those back, and it's open all the time. The Jack Chat line, 210-599-5550. Uh, it was this day in 1982, 41 years ago, that this song started a seven-week run at number one on the charts. Take a listen. Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, number one for seven weeks with a song about racial harmony called Ebony and Ivory. There's a uh, professional athlete who three years ago said they shouldn't even play the national anthem at games, and I am not participating in it. I'm not coming out for it. Friday night, that same athlete stood for the national anthem. What changed and who is it? We're going to talk about it after we update KTSA Time Saver Traffic here next. Info at your beck and call. An earful of information. Driving the news cycle. Just tell your smart device to play KTSA. KTSA News Time 537, Jack Riccardi live on 550 and 1071. KTSA, a professional athlete has done a 180 on the national anthem. Who is it and why? We're going to talk about that. We're getting your votes in on the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery. Do you go downtown more or less than you did four years ago? American cities, for the most part, have not come back to their pre-pandemic levels of downtown activity. We'll talk about it. 
Joining the show now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is our professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law, Bill Pyatt. Professor, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jack, and thank you for having me. Oh, good to have you. Um, wanted to talk about the Daniel Penny case. We uh, learned last week that the Marine who uh, was involved in that subway incident in New York City will face manslaughter, second-degree uh, charges. Um, what is the prosecution's burden of proof in a case like this? What do they have to specifically prove about Daniel Penny's activities? Okay, um, they have got to show for second-degree manslaughter that he acted recklessly, that he caused the death of another person. And then, of course, Penny will have the opportunity to present his defense that he was acting to defend himself and to defend others on the train. And these are, this is a serious charge. It carries a 3- to 15-year prison sentence if he's convicted. Mm-hmm. When you say... Um reckless that i understand that that is being used um one way by the law or in in the definition of the law but to to those of us who are lay people that word can mean so many things it's so such an amorphous word that's correct um okay now i'm not licensed in new york so i'm just relying on what i've been able to read uh recklessness in terms of that second degree manslaughter charge would the jury would be told that they would have to find beyond a reasonable doubt that Perry, I'm sorry, Penny was consciously aware that there was an unjustifiable risk that his actions would cause a death, and yet he had total disregard for that concern. So that's a high burden the state's going to have to meet. And recklessness is just, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, recklessness is just one element. Um, mm-hmm. The second thing is that they have to show that the recklessness caused the death of another person. And I understand just from listening to the media that among the things that will be raised by the defense is they allege that there's video that shows that the chokehold was released while uh, Mr. Neely was still breathing and that they attempted to resuscitate him and that in fact, Penny put him into the recovery position mm-hmm. so that they could make an effort. But again, that, that would be a fact question for the jury to have to determine. The, the big thing, I don't think anybody, first of all, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that Mr. Neely died. I don't think anybody thinks that was a, a desired result. But the reason that Penny, I expect, is going to raise, based on what his attorneys have said, is that he was acting to defend himself and others on the train. We have the right to use reasonable force to protect ourselves and to protect others. You have right to use deadly force if you have reason to believe that someone's life is in danger. So it will be a whole lot of fact issues, but the burden is always on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of the crime. And Mr. Penny is innocent at this point and will remain innocent unless and until the state can Mm -hmm. prove each and every one of those elements. What role in this trial might the eyewitnesses play? They're going to say, we know of at least one of them, a 66-year-old woman, who has either quoted or paraphrased uh, Neely as saying, I don't care, I'll take a bullet, I'll go to jail, 
I would kill a mother effer. I don't care. And um, in essence, the eyewitnesses are doing two things. They're, they're illustrating that they were afraid of the way this guy was acting, that they felt threatened by him, and that uh, Daniel Penny did not initially uh, or preemptively engage with Neely, but really uh, kind of tried to wait it out and endure it, and only when he felt it was getting out of hand did he step in. Some of these eyewitnesses said they were very grateful uh, that he did that. Is it important that they can quote him, and if they can quote him or paraphrase him, does that make any difference? Absolutely, because it will all go to Daniel Penny's state of mind when he put the the decedent into that chokehold. Was he acting unjustifiably? Was he acting with a reckless disregard of what was going to happen? Or did he believe that this person that he was detaining was so upset that he was willing to die, willing to go to jail, and put everybody at risk on that subway? Now, the subway system is such that they're underground, they're moving, there were no police officers on that car or apparently anywhere nearby on the train. And so that it's going to go to determining whether Penny acted reasonably under the circumstances as he understood them. Now, I've also read in the media that the decedent had a number of other arrests and had engaged in other violent conduct, but that would not help Penny unless Penny knew about those arrests mm-hmm. and about that previous mm-hmm. violent conduct. Speaking of what Penny knew or didn't know, he probably didn't know that, but somebody wrote a column in the uh, New York Post today making the argument, uh, Professor Pyatt, that that Daniel Penny is kind of like the Flight 93 passengers on September 11th in that they knew the other planes were being flown into targets and everybody aboard was being killed, so their reaction to their hijackers was driven by what they knew their fate would otherwise be. Is it a defense of Daniel Penny that there have been so many high-profile slashings, people being pushed onto the tracks, random acts of violence against innocent passengers on these subways? In other words, in that atmosphere, does it, does it change or charge you know, his decision-making? Yes, if he's aware of all those other things that you've just raised, and probably anybody who uses the subways regularly would be aware of those things going on. So it's all going to be going into his state of mind. After, after the state, assume the state can prove that the chokehold caused his death. If they're able to do that, then they have to prove, the state has to prove that the chokehold was placed in a reckless fashion, and they're going to have to negate any self-defense or defense of others that Penny can raise. Now, we were talking about the eyewitnesses recounting what what Neely was saying, um, but is there a distinction? Does the law make a distinction between he was saying things like blank, 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 versus he exactly said this? Well, nobody, unless they had an audio recording, is going to be able to quote him word for word. It would be what Penny heard the defendant say, I'm sorry, the decedent say. It actually wouldn't be what the witnesses say. They could corroborate Penny if Penny Mm -hmm. testifies that I heard him do blah, blah, blah. I heard him say blah, 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 and the witnesses can corroborate that. And in fact, unless people have been coached, human nature being what it is, you're not going to get a complete word-to-word exact memory from everybody who is in a very tense, very scary, very frightening situation. Mm -hmm. 
And and so in that respect, if there was, and there's been speculation in New York about whether there's additional cell phone video, if there was cell phone video, then you would have a verbatim record of what was said, right? That's correct. And and so the the it sounds like the there's a there's a pretty you know heavy burden on the state to prove that manslaughter second degree. In, in other words, is that charge the selection of that charge kind of on the high end of what the state could probably prove given the facts that we know i think it's probably on the high end but you know how all of the politics is pressuring into this Uh, i think there's a number of folks that are upset that penny wasn't charged with first degree murder uh, a premeditated killing and so short of that charge there's going to be some folks who will be disappointed others of course are disappointed yeah. that he was charged with manslaughter there are other things lesser than that that he could have been charged with uh, assault battery and we'll have to see the da filed the charges and again i'm not an expert in new york procedure but we'll see whether that's the only charge or whether the da is going to go back to the grand jury and maybe try to get an indictment on something else mm-hmm. but right now as it stands penny is charged with second degree manslaughter and that's it have you had a chance to uh, hear anything about the Durham report yet? It's just come out, obviously, this afternoon. We haven't read the whole thing, but any impressions on that yet? Yes, I haven't read the whole 300-page report, but I did listen to the commentary, and I you know, flipped networks and read all that I could read. And um, I think, essentially, it's it's shedding light on what happened, and the conclusions are pretty broad that the FBI should not have launched the Russia probe that the FBI relied on information provided by a political opponent of President Trump, i.e. the Hillary campaign, in order to proceed with an investigation that they disregarded evidence to suggest that it was uh, an inaccurate accusation Mm -hmm. of Russian collusion. But what's going to happen with that? I mean, what has happened has happened. It's done. Mm-hmm. It caused disruption in American society. It probably weaponized the justice system. If it casts light on some of the operatives within the FBI and maybe even FBI Director Comey himself, uh, but nobody's been charged with anything as a result of that report. So it's a report, mm-hmm. and that's probably all it's going to be as a report. I mean, it, it is uh, frustrating to think that you can't redress or 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 uh, do over. The political, you know, sort of uh, exercises that took place during that time, most notably the 2020 election, that's in the books. It's done. You can't have it again. You can't restage it. You can't play the game again, put the teams back on the field. So, um, in essence, the report comes at a time when the people it criticizes have gotten away with what it says they did. I think that's a that's an accurate inference. Uh, if there is anything positive, maybe there will be more scrutiny going forward on actions of the FBI, making sure that we are not weaponizing the justice system for political purposes, which would be an absolute attack on democracy. We hear that phrase a lot. But to have the law enforcement officials acting as political operatives, using the criminal justice system, obtaining indictments and pursuing investigations during an active political campaign, I think that is nothing that the framers of the Constitution intended or would have allowed to take place. 
Bill Pyatt, professor of law, St. Mary's University. Professor, thank you as always. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. We're going to update KTSA Time Saver Traffic, our KTSA AccuWeather forecast for today. Storm chances tonight, 66 showers and thunderstorms in the forecast for tomorrow, 80. Right now, humid 79 at San Antonio Severe Weather Station 550 and 1071 KTSA as we get a look at KTSA Time Saver Traffic. Today's JR poll at KTSA.com is powered by River City Oral Surgery. 550 KTSA and FM 1071. I am so happy to talk with you guys. News talk made for you. We we need everything that you are doing. KTSA. KTSA. We need you more now than ever. Stay connected. Five fifty-five at KTSA. Jack Riccardi, you can jump in at two ten, five nine nine fifty-five fifty-five. Do you go downtown more or less than you used to? Today's River City Oral Surgery JR poll. It was a uh, preseason game for the Phoenix Mercury star Brittany Griner, but on Friday night she stood with her teammates while the national anthem was played at their arena. Uh, before the game. Now, Brittany Griner, as you remember, served almost a year in a Russian prison on drug charges. Uh, that She had some cannabis oil vape canisters in her luggage over there. And it was a big deal when they were able to get her back to the States. She says now that when she hears the national anthem, it hit different. This was a player who, in 2020, wouldn't participate in the National Anthem and, in fact, said in interviews in the Arizona Republic newspaper, I honestly feel we shouldn't play the National Anthem during our season. She said she was protesting and not participating, and if the league wants to play it, that's fine, but I won't be out there. Now she's out there. How do you feel about that? Um, Brittany Griner has done a 180 on the National Anthem. She says, by the way, that she always felt differently when she was, for example, playing in the Olympics, uh, and they would raise the flag and hang the medal around your neck and play your anthem. She says now it sounds different, it hits different when she hears it here. And obviously some people are calling her out, and I, I get that. I, I mean, there's no, there's no question that what she's doing now and what she's saying now makes what she was doing in 2020 look ridiculous. I mean, what she's essentially saying is, now I get it, now I appreciate it because I was in a Russian prison, because I had no due process, because now I know that what I was accusing my country of is what's actually happening in other countries. The oppression that I thought I was living under in the USA, I actually had to get a taste of. So one way to look at this would be you're a hypocrite and how ridiculous that you had to go through all that just to appreciate the the playing of and the, and the, the significance 
of playing the national anthem. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of a different vector with this when we continue. I'll tell you what I think. I want to hear what you think. We'll uh, we'll get to your calls at 210-599-5555, and we'll see how you're voting in the JR poll, too. Uh, we'll run down the news here with Christian next on KTSA. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and let's get you right back for some more of the Jack Riccardi Show. All right, Christian, thank you. You have a good night. We'll catch you tomorrow. Later in this hour, we're going to get your results on the JR poll about downtown. But let's start with Brittany Griner. The WNBA star is now standing for the national anthem after not even coming out for it three years ago. And a lot of people are dogpiling on her and saying, this is hypocritical, what took you so long? You, you really had to literally stay in a Russian prison to find out that you don't have it so bad here in the U.S.? Well, I'll tell you what. Brittany Griner is, I believe, 32 years old. And I'm 57 years old. So in my time, I grew up, and you did too, perhaps, during the Cold War. We saw and we were educated about the exceptionalism of the United States versus totalitarian regimes around the world. I I would say that if you are in your 40s or older, there would be no excuse for not understanding what we are, what they are, the, uh, despite its flaws, the, the excellence of the American system. We have an appreciation for freedom because of what we've seen and because of what we've learned, how we were educated. I have to say, I don't know Brittany Griner, but I also don't know what people her age know, for example, about the Cold War. I don't know what they know about American exceptionalism. So when she says, now I get it, regarding the national anthem, I'm glad she gets it. And it makes me wonder if her age group doesn't get it, didn't get it, and is that their fault? Is that our fault? Is that the education system's fault? I mean, this woman literally had to go and languish in a prison where she had no rights, no due process, wasn't sure she was going to get out. And, and that is what it took. That's the, the, the crucible that it took for her to go, oh, okay, now I appreciate my country. I, I, I realize how frustrating that is, and I'm not, you have every right to be frustrated. I'm frustrated. But rather than just be mad at her, my question is, how does this happen? How does every generation of Americans, until about the last 30 years, get it? No, appreciate their country. And what have we done and what are we doing that is generating this lack of understanding, this ignorance about democracy and due process and the Bill of Rights? Look, I understand if you are upset about our history with racism and the Jim Crow laws, uh, you, 
we all should be, okay, those are stains on our national character, on our national story. But our story is written in the Bill of Rights. It's written in the ideals that we struggle to live up to, even when we don't completely live up to them. Our story is that we're trying to. We're aiming for them. We're aiming higher. And I think it's important to look at Brittany Griner and her generation and go, why is it that they don't get that? And she says, now I get it. Well, I'm happy that she gets it. I'm glad that she gets it. I I really am. But obviously we can't put everybody through the same experience. (laughs) I mean, maybe we... I don't know if the Russians would would be willing to imprison large numbers of our of our fellow citizens, but I mean, obviously, we can't put everybody through that that particular gauntlet. But now she gets it; she has perspective, and I, I'm always glad to see people grow. If she's grow, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. If she's grown as a person, that's good. But it is very frustrating to me like I said, that at one time we equipped every boy and girl with an education and a background and an upbringing that w- that at least gave them the, the basics. Now, not everybody grows up with the same love of country. Not everybody acts on it the same way or, or votes the same way. I'm, not, I, I'm just saying you ought to at least know what you've got. What you do with it is up to you. How appreciative you are of it is up to you. If you want to be an ingrate, that's fun. That's your right. It's a free country. But I, I'm not sure that we've given people under a certain age what we got. And then I'm not surprised when it turns out they don't really get it. 210 599 55. We're going to talk about that, the Durham report, some other things. Your votes in the JR poll coming up here on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Celeste is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Celeste. Hi, Jack. And I do share your best wishes for Brittany Griner. I'm not going to criticize her, but I, I'm grateful to you. May I just take a moment as a proud daughter of the greatest generation and a, a daughter of a World War II veteran, may I just say that I, I thank God for the men that landed on mm at Normandy that they didn't need three years to get it or they didn't need three mm-hmm. years for it to hit different. And that's mm-hmm. all I wanted to say is that I, I, yeah. I know the world would look different if those men that were landing on those beaches that got turned red, if they had felt differently. So they, right. thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Celeste. I agree with you. I'm also the child of a greatest generation veteran and, and I feel the same way. I, I mean, I know that was a different time. So in my dad's time and in your family's, uh, your relative's time, uh, there were different countries and different systems and different enemies. But also, I, I have to point out, and I've, I've said this about my dad before, and I, I'm sure many of us have these kinds of stories to tell. My dad grew up, he was an immigrant from Italy. His, his, he was second generation, so his parents came from Italy. Had very little. His parents didn't speak very much English. He had kind of a hard depression upbringing. He had been openly discriminated against for being Italian. Uh, They used the N-word 
on my dad, believe it or not. He's obviously white, but because he had very kinky, curly hair. And he lived in a neighborhood where, where businesses and stores put signs in the window that said, no Italians admitted, no Italians need apply. There were apartments that wouldn't rent to his family. There were stores that wouldn't sell to his family. There were companies that wouldn't hire an Italian. There were also other immigrant groups, Polish, Irish, that were treated this way, Asian. But my point is, they did not have a perfect Walt Disney airbrushed experience, but they also had some basic understanding that they were still very fortunate to be in the United States, very fortunate not to be back in Italy, very fortunate not to be living in Hitler's Germany or, or Tojo's Japan, very fortunate not to be living under communism, fortunate that if they did work hard, there would be a payoff, they could, they could better themselves, and every generation of our family did that. And I know you have those stories to tell as well. So it's not that they had no adversity or that there was no discrimination or that the American dream was perfect chef's kiss for them, because no, it, it never has been. But somehow they knew in the big picture, I'm, I'm, I'm better off here than anywhere else. I'm better off in this system than anywhere else. I forget who said it, but democracy's the worst system in the world except for all the others we know of. So if Brittany Griner didn't get it until she went to prison in Russia, whose fault is that? Is that Brittany Griner's fault? Maybe. Okay, you might think so. Is it the people who were supposed to educate her? Maybe. Is it our culture that we don't uphold these things and we, we mock and ridicule what we used to uphold as ideas and ideals? I mean, where did, you know, Celeste mentions the greatest generation. That was an immigrant generation. Those were farmers and, and store clerks and, and office boys that went and did heroic, incredible, superhuman things in Europe and Asia. What makes a man do that for a country that maybe hasn't really yet shown him its promise? My dad was 17 when he enlisted. So I, I, think, I think it's worth asking, what, what would be your answer? I mean, why, why is Brittany Griner only getting it now? 210-599-5555 as we update KTSA Time Saver Traffic here next. And there's a big... Big news from Laurel Ridge Treatment Center. This coming Saturday, Laurel Ridge is cutting the ribbon on a new, uh, a new center called the Laurel Ridge Formative Years Child and Adolescent Program over on Babcock Road. And this is in keeping with their long tradition of always finding new ways to get mental health services and resources to the people who need them. So they've expanded and opened this center in the medical center to give more hope and more treatment options to the thousands of families in and around San Antonio and South Texas who have children and teens who we know are struggling with the effects of the school shutdowns, uh, behavioral issues, uh, drug issues, and all the things that are going on with our young people now. And it's always been Laurel Ridge's tradition to figure out who needs help, how do we get the help to them, how do we innovate care programs, 
to meet the needs of families and families with children. And this new center will be a big part of that over on Babcock Road, opening on Saturday. By the way, everyone's invited between noon and 3 to the ribbon cutting for the Laurel Ridge Formative Years Child and Adolescent Program. And if you ever need to talk to someone at Laurel Ridge, you can. 24 hours a day at 210 491 3591. 210 491 talking to Maria Bartiromo yesterday on Fox, and he's talking about the investigation into the Biden family's uh, payoffs or, or shakedowns or whatever, whatever it is that's causing foreign governments to uh, basically direct deposit money to the Bidens. And as you know, they, um, uh, the centerpiece of this investigation is a whistleblower who, you know, sort of opened the door and shined the light on on what was going on. Well, she's talking to him about this when he makes this unbelievable uh, revelation that the whistleblower's informant in this bribery scheme has gone missing. Take a listen to this. Hold on a second, Congressman. Did you just say that the whistleblower or the informant is now missing? Well, we, we're hopeful that we can find the informant. Now, remember, these informants are, are kind of in the, the spy business, so uh, they don't make a habit of uh, being seen a lot or, or being high profile or anything like that. Uh, we have basic information with respect to what the informant has alleged, and it's very serious. It alleges... Uh, that Joe Biden, when he was vice president, was involved in a quid pro quo with a foreign country uh, in exchange for, for foreign aid. This is a very serious accusation. All the FBI has to do is say, yeah, we looked into it and, and it, it wasn't a credible informant. Are, but they will okay, answer our hold on question. a second. So, so here's what I don't get. I mean, I get it. Obviously, I get it. But this is what frustrates me. First of all, Comer sounds kind of jovial about this. Like, if this was the other way around, if this was a Democratic committee chairman investigating a Republican president, and he was revealing in an interview that their source was suddenly missing, he or she would be spitting fire. They'd be, they'd be hurling accusations. They'd be calling it a cover-up. They'd be demanding accountability. I mean, I don't know if this person is dead or got scared or has been squirreled away somewhere. We don't know. Comer's talking about it like, well, we sure hope we can find him, like like he misplaced his reading glasses. But the other part of this is that here again, as with the Durham investigation, what we're going to hear, what we keep hearing is that things that are supposed to be due process are instead political. And my frustration is I'm sure that Comer's committee can bring forth testimony, 
can bring forth the report. I mean, it took Durham four freaking years, but we got the report. What are we going to do with it? Is anyone going to be held accountable? Are we just going to point out that our system is broken? Are we just going to point out that if you have power, you can weaponize the law and the the uh, separation of powers against your opponents? Is, is that it? Is that the best we can do? Well, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, I, I don't mean this to sound personal, but heads have to roll or it doesn't matter. You, th- This has to be, there has to be a level of accountability that scares people from trying it again. I understand that there are lifetime people in the Justice Department, let's say, that, yes, new presidents bring in the top, thin crust of people, those are their people, but underneath everybody else's career. I get it. I don't know what you do about that, but I get it. So I think the only thing you probably can do is have consequences that scare people about their career. They don't want to wreck their career. They don't want to destroy their career. They don't want to lose their 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 uh you know their pension by participating in something as as smarmy and obvious as the Steele dossier. So when somebody comes to them like a Jim Comey or a Peter Strzok, they're like, no, man, you have to find somebody else. I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to throw away my, I've I've got two years left, or I've got five years left, or I've got a kid in college, or I'm not, I won't do it. But see, I don't see that right now. To me, it looks right now like, yeah, we can point out what went wrong with the 2020 election, but we're not going to do anything about it. We can point out that the Bidens are selling access to the federal government, but what are we going to do about it? Your informant is missing? Like, missing how? They they forgot to charge their phone? Or you physically can't find them? Like, they're not at their home anymore. And so I, I know that this is the frustration a lot of people have, and I, I, it's just, it's hard to put into words, but we've lived, we've lived with it for so long. But it, it, there is an, a sense of impotence watching this process, you know, Commerce Committee, watching the Durham report, watching what's happening with elections in the states. You know, we're going to have an election next year. Are we going to have accountability for ballots and ballot harvesting and provisional voting? Are we going to have a lot of shenanigans again? And and if we do, is that because Republicans didn't address what happened last time? And it has to be done at the state level. You have to be in the room where they count the votes. Otherwise, everything else is just talk. Everything else is just interviews on Fox. Big deal. Hurt him. Don't need him. That's the common denominator in all these stories. We're very good at, at, at pointing out what's wrong. We're terrible at putting it right. And there is no fear on the part of the people that get... Fi- I mean, Jim Comey, Peter Strzok, these people are not... Um, 
examples that are being held up to other career people in the DOJ, like, hey, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to go where they went. You don't want what happened to them to happen to you because nothing happened to them. And I'm sorry, but it's pretty clear that Biden and his family have sold access to him to the highest bidder and enriched themselves. When I see children and toddlers getting direct deposits from foreign governments, I know they're not consultants. I sure as hell know that Hunter's not one, but I don't think toddlers are. So, and and when I see Hunter sell one of his Fakakta paintings for $600,000, I know what that is, and you know what that is. That's not art appreciation. That's money laundering. So, wake me up when you're going to do something about it. But if you're just going to write reports about it and talk to Maria Bartiromo about it, that doesn't, that doesn't do any good. And I don't know, maybe, maybe the Republicans think there's some shame involved, like if we just if we get the word out. But I, I think it's pretty clear by now. I mean, Biden's been in politics since 1972. If shame was going to be a thing, this guy got caught 40 years ago. He was caught plagiarizing other people's speeches. If shame was a thing... It would be over already. Strzok and Comey still prance around like heroes. They they think they are. Clapper and all those people that signed the letter about the Hunter laptop, they, they still present themselves as patriots. Because not a single thing has happened. Not a single consequence has fallen on any of them. And now Comer can't find his informant? I, I wouldn't just be telling Maria Bartiromo that. I, I'd be yelling that at the from the rooftops. Tell me what you think. We'll get poll results coming up. We'll update KTSA. Time saver traffic 210-599-5555.